Hey fellow nerds, I'm Megan Smiley and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've gotten into practice, looked around and thought, so this is my life? I get it. You're in deep and you feel stuck. You may have no idea what the next step would be, or maybe you have an idea, but think it's unrealistic. I truly believe that there's a path forward for each of us if we're intentional about finding it. And this podcast will be a great source of advice and inspiration for you to make that leap to a more fulfilling career. Hey guys, so before we jump into the full episode, I wanted to run something by you. So as you may or may not have um, been aware, I've been working on building out this, um, what I call sort of an illegal design framework. That's what those mini episodes are. Um, And it's really sort of an outline for how to redesign your career and your life. Um, And I've been thinking about how to take that and turn it into a small group program. Um, But it's sort of early in the stages of of conceptualizing that. Um, And I just want to know if anyone would be interested in hearing more about my thoughts and also giving me your thoughts about what would be helpful to include or not include. Um, I'd just love to hear from you. And, and, you know, my approach here is really to try and like co-create something that would be genuinely useful to people. So if you're interested in hearing more, shoot me a note, like anywhere, um, it might be easiest. Uh, I'll link my Instagram as always in the show notes and you could just shoot me a DM. It doesn't have to be complicated, just interested. Maybe I have thoughts, whatever. Um, anyway, I would just love to hear from you guys. So let me know. All right, on to the episode. Vicki Hubner is my guest today. She's the director of online legal programs and an adjunct professor at Santa Clara University School of Law. She is also the founder of Upskilled Canines, a dog training business. Vicki spent a number of years in litigation from a clerkship to a big firm to a smaller firm. She realized that practice did not light her up the way she saw it doing for some of the partners that she worked with. And so somewhat of a whim, (laughs) it kind of fell in her lap a little bit, but she took up this opportunity to work in career services at a law school. And 25 years later, she is still in higher ed. Um, But she has simultaneously pursued her real passion for dog training and started her own business. Um, She sort of thought, why wait until retirement to do this work that is really what I love. So I think it's a really good story of kind of the journey and evolving and balancing your various interests. So I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. Vicki, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, So I like to ask everyone to start. uh, What took you to law school? Oh, well, Um, I went to law school for, I think, a couple of reasons. Uh, One was nothing to do with me. It was the dream of my father to have his children go to law school. He was an immigrant to the United States. He felt that education was the way to um, move forward in this country. Yeah. And he um, instilled in all of them, all of us, me and my two brothers that, you know, law was this really great profession. Yeah. But independent of that, in addition to that, I've always been this person who's always been very concerned about 
the more vulnerable people in society, um, civil rights, um, whether or not they're being protected. Uh, people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was someone uh, that I was really, um, that I admired quite a bit. Yeah. And I found myself while I was in college trying different majors because, you know, when you go to college, it's all about extending your boundaries and your independence. Yeah. Trying to get as far away from dad's ideas as possible, where it was like (laughs) advertising. And, and I found myself sitting there going, you know, I'm not really a good creative person, but I really like all these uh, modules that are on like the Federal Trade Commission, and that's all about you know laws and regulations. And I realized that this is where that this is where my brain worked the best huh. um, was in that arena. And so I ended up gravitating out of all of those different majors I was trying and into a major that was more geared towards preparation for law school, and then ultimately into law school. Yeah. So did you go straight from undergrad to law school? I, I had one little gap. So I, um, I really felt that I needed to um, do some service for my church. And so I had a little gap right between undergraduate and law school where I went and um, served on a mission for, for my church mm-hmm. and, um, and did that for a year and a half. Um, but other than that, like I already had, I'd already applied for law school before I did that. I had been accepted. I sent in all the papers to defer for a year. Yeah. And so everything was all settled, um, where it was like, okay, you graduate from college, you do this one thing, you come back and then you go right into law school. Right, right. So you weren't sort of, it wasn't like, oh, I'm considering not going to law school. You knew no, that. No, 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 no. Yeah. I think I knew from pretty much my sophomore year in college, like I said, I tried, you know, I tried an advertising major. I tried taking some photography classes. Um, I, you know, dabbled in some economics and just found myself continually, continually gravitating back over to things that had to do with statutes the interpretation of statutes, legislation. Yeah. Finding that, you know, I, that this is just where it's where my brain was the most comfortable with in all of those things that lawyers do so well in terms of reading, you know, statutory law, interpreting it, and then making decisions about how this then affects the regulation of either people or business. Yeah. And so did that sort of interest, did that continue in law school? Was it what you expected based on your undergraduate experiences? Um, Yes. So things, you know, courses in law school that, that dealt with that were things that I loved the most. Mm -hmm. Um, I also loved courses that dealt with, again, social justice type issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, you know, but I really found that anything where I could get more scholarly um, with the law was something that I enjoyed more than anything else. And when I graduated from law school, I did a judicial clerkship for two years mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's and I still say that was the yeah, and I still say that was the best job that I ever had while I was practicing law. Yeah, it's the thing that I was the most hardwired for because. 
as a judicial clerk, you sit there and you get a file. And I was at a one of these um, Section 1 appellate courts. Mm-hmm. And you get a file up, you sit there, you read through the file, you're looking at, okay, what decisions were made, you know, with the adjudicatory bodies uh, before it got to this court? What are the facts? How do they align? Um, And then you sit there and you go, well, how does that align with the law? And if the law isn't settled on this point, then what can I find out from Congress? What were they thinking What's the thinking from other courts? What are the thinking from legal scholars? This was the thing I it's loved. Very academic. It's uh, it was it was yeah. very academic, and it was yeah. the thing that I loved about it. Um, and frankly, I think if I could have done that for the rest of my career, I probably would have been a really satisfied person and would have stayed in a you know that particular lane of legal practice. Yeah, yeah. So the clerkship ended, I assume, as they do. And this was back in the early 90s before there was that huge wave of rise of career clerks. You know, mm-hmm. you, at several federal courts, you now have even a, like a district court judge having one slot that they've dedicated to a career clerk. Yeah. And yeah. Even then, I don't think you take someone who's just fresh out of law school and you put them into one of those particular positions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended. And so then I, you know, started practicing law in the traditional lanes that we all know so much about. Yeah. What, what kind of law did you practice? So I was in litigation. Or... Yeah. So um, I first started off and again, this was the early nineties with a larger firm. And that meant that litigation was, when you were starting off, new as a new associate. It meant that you were doing a ton of discovery work. And in those days, it was production of documents. Yep. Yep. And <laughs> now I it's thought, all online, but even when I was, I was a you know young associate. It was yeah, it was not, uh, yes. So in those days, it, you walked literally into. <laughs> yes. I remember walking into a warehouse, and it was just lined up with boxes. Yep. You could have had a fortress of boxes and then there was a fortress of paralegals or a way, an army of paralegals and this army of young associates. And our job was to take a box, to read all the papers in the box, and then to determine whether or not they were relevant to any of the 150 requests for production of documents that had been uh, propounded. Yeah. They were, whether they were privileged, whether there was work product, what, you know, if they weren't relevant, why? And if they were, then, you, you know, you would send it out to the paralegals and then they would put it on what was then like microfilm. Yeah. And I'd review it to make sure that anything that needed to be redacted that was privileged was. Yeah. Uh, I did that and I thought, I don't think I went to law school to do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this just doesn't feel right. And yeah. so. So then I went from that to the polar opposite to a little tiny firm. The woman was, so when I started working for that attorney, she was a solo practitioner. Mm -hmm. So I was then the second lawyer. So I guess we were truly then a small firm. We were no longer a solo practice. It was the two of us. Yeah. And the law she did was, um, she did a lot of plaintiff's personal injury. Uh, She did some employment on the plaintiff's side. Um, Every now and then she would take a plaintiff's med mal case, but she was pretty picky about those. So she didn't take a lot of them. And um, and it was kind of like 
we got, oh, we got a couple homeowners association cases. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, whatever came through the door with a, with the exception of she didn't want to do family law and she didn't want to do criminal law. For mm-hmm. sure. And, um, and, and again, it's a, I thought, okay, well, this gets me closer to all those social justice type issues. Yeah. That yeah. I felt I needed to go to law school for, you know, um, People aren't going to hire you as a plaintiff's attorney unless unless they can if they if they can solve the problem on their own they're not going over to you. Yeah, and so I thought, oh, this is good. And then I discovered that I was spending a big bulk of my time doing nothing but being on the phone negotiating over sometimes what felt like pennies in the grand scheme of things. There's mm-hmm. with insurance companies. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and that this was what you did a lot of. I also watched my boss, and this was a woman who she loved going to court. She, yeah. I mean, she just lived and breathed and existed to do this. And she would think through all of the strategy, like, oh, if I shake the hand or if I don't shake the hand or if I stand over here or if I wear these color shoes. Yeah. These things are going to either be appealing to the judge or they're going to throw the other attorney off their game. And these were things that I just I just personally didn't have an interest in. Uh, right, I, right. It's, this is, the thing I discovered was I could do it, but I didn't love any of it. Right, right. And it was and going to work just felt like that. It was going to work. Right. It was something that I could see this other attorney where she, when she came to work, it was fun. Everything was fun for her. Yeah. Didn't yeah. feel like work. The things that felt like work to her were the running of the office. Yeah. It's the business side. But the law side, that wasn't work to her. For me, the running of the office side well, that was kind of interesting and that was kind of cool and didn't feel like work, but yeah. law side, it just felt like work to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can definitely early. identify with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just realized really early on that I needed to make a change because that wasn't going to be a happy existence. And so I talked to um, a law professor who I had, I had been her research assistant in law school and it was like, look, I've had three jobs in the law, one of which is really not attainable for me to go back and do another clerkship. Yeah. Um, I guess it is, but really it isn't. And it's like, I've tried the big firm. I've tried the little firm. I've tried. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm not detail oriented enough to be a good transactional attorney. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so I just don't know what to do. and. And it just so happened when I called her that there was an opening in the career services office in my alma mater. Uh-huh. And she was like, you know what? We have this opening. It's about to be filled. But she's like, but I, the hiring process, it doesn't seem like it's going really smoothly. Uh, she's like, I don't know. I'm not really involved in it. But she's like, here's the assistant dean who's overseeing that process. Here's her home telephone number. You need to call her today. And let her know that you're interested. Oh, wow. in <laughs> so that sort of exactly. wasn't like the process of some long analysis of what job you would apply to. It sort of presented itself. No, it was. It was, and yeah. it was probably the most impulsive thing I've done in my whole life. Yeah, yeah. I'm just really not an impulsive person. And um, and I called, 
I talked to her kids. It was a Sunday. She was out. Her kids were at home. They were like, we'll take a message. We'll pass it on to our mom. Yeah. Okay. I'll never, like, I left a yeah. message with kids. I'm not going to hear back from her. They, yeah, who knows? They may not even get the message to her. Right. And it turned out that the next day I did. And so that was the start of the process for me moving into higher ed and being there for now. Let's see here. Five, almost. I'm coming uh, in 2025. It will have been 30 years in higher ed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. If I, if I stay in higher ed until 2025. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So about 25 years now, a quarter century working in higher ed. So somewhat impulsive, but it seems like it worked out. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and I remember actually on year four that I was working in higher ed, I really had to have that moment where I thought, you know, you're getting far enough out because when I first took the job, I thought, oh, I'll do this for yeah. a year. And, you know, the beauty of working in career services is, is that I'll get to see all the trends in the employment market. And I'll, I'll also be kind of, you know, you're kind of proximate to employers right? I'll, right. to see if I want to transition out. I'll know who's hiring, who's not. I, I can make a transition. Right. And so when four years had passed and they seem to have passed really fast, yeah, <laughs> I had to sit there and think, you know, you have to make a choice. You're either going back into traditional law practice and you like soon. Yeah. Staying in higher ed. You like, you really need to make a choice. And I ended up making the choice at that time that higher ed was where I wanted to be. Yeah. So what did you like about higher ed as opposed to practicing? I, I don't, I'm not sure if you know that I just got out of nine years in higher ed. So I, yes. <laughs> yeah. so I think there's a couple things I liked. One was I liked the fact that I was in an academic institution. So it brought me back Mm -hmm. to this point where even though my job didn't involve researching the law in depth, Mm -hmm. it would have as a judicial law clerk or, you know, back when you're a student and you're writing a journal article or you're preparing a moot court for a moot court competition or working on some kind of scholarly project. I was in that environment. So I'm still in that environment, which means that I can access all of the different, um, like conferences and symposia that law schools put on. Yeah. Um, so that right there was something that I thought, oh my goodness, this is like, it's like the kid in the candy store where you're like, look at all these varieties of candy. And I'm right. Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was really appealing to me. You know, when I started my career in higher ed, I was like almost the same age as the law students. Right. It's very yeah. proximate to their experience. So I really enjoyed being with the law students. And then of course I aged. The law yeah. students ended up staying the same age like, <laughs> in and out. It's like, that, it's like that line from, uh, <laughs> what's that movie? I stay the same age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but I, but I changed. Yes. My interests changed. And I found that, you know, I was able to, within higher ed, I was able to change my job so that, you know, when I finally got to that point, you know, a few years ago where I was sitting there in career services going, I don't know if I can keep doing this because I don't know how many times I can have a discussion with like a 21-year-old about how the world works and 
you know, it's like, I, I just don't know. I, Did you get calls from parents? Because I got called from parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm in my 50s. I don't know. My job changed in higher ed. Yeah. To go into the world of online legal education and to, again, sit there thinking more strategically about, well, but what does this mean for our institution? How do you implement this? How do you operationalize this? Right. And that was, you know, something that was super appealing to me. And it goes back again to when I was in law practice where I realized, you know, when you're in a two-person firm, the attorneys spend an awful lot of time operationalizing the business. Yeah. Because no one else is going to do it. There's not an administrator, you know, that's going to be like, hey, I'm the, you know, business unit manager. Right. And And I liked that part. So, you know, so this, you know, so part of what I've been able to do in higher ed, whether I was being someone who was leading a career services office or now someone who's directing an online legal program. Yeah. So I've been able to think about the, you know, the, the business strategy part of it. And especially um, my current position in higher ed allows me to think a lot about the operationalizing of how you take a concept, which is we want to offer online legal education to non-lawyers. Yeah. Okay. How do you take that concept and how do you actually make it a reality? You know, what do you mean by that? What, what curriculum are you going to have? Who's going to teach it? Yep. But uh, what paperwork do you have to do within the university? Who, where are the challenges and the hurdles to doing this? Yeah. And who are your well, if, was, if your your place was anything like mine, it was law schools are much like the rest of law practice, slow to evolve, I think. Oh and particularly oh the online goodness. program was so hard to I, I my office also worked on online programs specifically it, in yes. compliance. <laughs> yes. And we had faculty members who were more forward thinking that were like, okay, sounds good. And then we had faculty members who were like, wow, if we do this, we're going to be so innovative. And it's like, uh, it's really this higher ed online thing has been around for a long time now. <laughs> yeah. We're not. Yeah. And yeah. then we had faculty members who questioned whether or not we needed to do it. Like they knew that it was out there because I had presented yeah. them with a lot of statistics about the prevalence of online education in undergraduate programs. Yeah. How this was something that students were very familiar with, that they expected. And I was like, you know, I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I know this is a trend, but maybe we should resist it. And it's like, yeah, you kind of like the people that are silent movie, you know, theater owner. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Maybe we should resist this whole talking picture thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you do that. And, you know, unless you want to be the one specialty movie house. And, you know, some in like Southern California, where you can draw on talent to run that, then this is probably not a good business model to adopt if you're not going to be that. Yeah. Yeah. um, yeah. I found that to be a challenge of working in a university environment was just it it is the entrenchment, the bureaucracy, the sort of surprising lack of innovation (laughs) at times. It is. So that is, I think, uh, the biggest challenge in higher ed, uh, you know, that I keep talking about in this world of like, 
online programs and law schools trying to seek for new ways to bring in new revenue lines to their traditional package of services that they sell, meaning JD and LLM education, mm-hmm. is that uh, whether it's the law school or the university itself, neither institution is poised to move very fast. And especially in Silicon Valley, where um, businesses move extraordinarily fast, mm-hmm. it's this really odd, you know, dichotomy because, of course, you know, universities, especially those in Silicon Valley, like to talk about their, you know, their ties to the technology community, the fact that they can be innovative, yet at the same time, like I said, the academy doesn't really seem to be set up to be agile and nimble the way that tech companies are. And, you know, some of that may change with the pandemic only because every institution in the United States found in the springtime of 2020 that whether they wanted to use online education or not, they all had to embrace it. Yeah. They all started to need it. They needed to start thinking a little bit more broadly because the world changed. And if their business models don't change, they're going to have a problem. Even after we get wider, you know, distribution of vaccines and we go back because when I talk to people in business, there's nobody I'm talking to who believes that we're going back to what we were in January 2019. Right. Right. Back to something, something that is a future model that's out there, but it's a different model than exists yeah. Yeah. You know, January 2019. Which I think will be for the best. I do think it's Im- sort of important when people are thinking about like, oh, like, I don't like law for what reason? And then thinking about, okay, well, what is the culture of an educational institution? What is the culture of a startup company in Silicon Valley? What's the culture of a government job, right? Because there are the things that you do at a job and then there are the sort of environmental aspects that you, you know, for me, ultimately, I found that kind of stifling. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, and the environmental aspects can become, I, I think- There are a lot of good ones at a university as well. There's a lot of great well. ones <laughs> yeah. with education, which yeah. is why I don't leave it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, like you said, you perform the job and the tasks of the job but the environment, if you don't, if, if you don't, if you can't embrace or live with the environment, yeah, I think it could become something where, again, when you think about your day-to-day professional life and your professional identity, yeah, it become really wearing where you go, yeah, this just isn't the right fit for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you've, you know, as you said, been doing it for, you know, a long time years, yeah. but you, but you are not, um, you know, you have a broad set of interests, right? So this is not your only endeavor at this point. No, it's not. (laughs) So on, yes. So on the side of that, I um, stumbled into professional dog training. So I, um, I've always loved dogs, Mm -hmm. dogs ever since I graduated from law school. So, you know, even when I was working in a clerk in, as a clerk in Washington, D.C., I ended up um, purchasing a, a purebred dog from a breeder, and um, 
I think the breeder knew how inexperienced I was in terms of knowing about dogs because what she ended up selling me was a gorgeous dog that was extremely shy, fearful. And I, when I drove out to her house in rural Maryland, Mm -hmm. realized, I realized now that um, the house, she wasn't a dog hoarder, although Dog people can be. Yeah, dog people can be pretty crazy. I, yeah, I grew up and currently have a standard poodle. So those people are a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They can be really, yes. Yeah, yeah. in the movie Best in Show, uh, I laugh yeah. because I'm like, this is, this is us. The, yeah. the, the people that I did dog trials with, I'm like, this is us. Yes. But, you know, but that dog was used to living on a rural piece of property with a million dogs, two people, and that was it. And now yeah. I took him out of that environment and I plunked him into a townhouse complex in Northern Virginia. Yeah. And that was just like, that was not a good move for that poor dog. So I had to learn owning him. I all of a sudden had to learn all sorts of things about dog behavior. Yeah. Um, and what was happening with it. And so we started going through that and it got me into the more I worked with him, the more I realized that, you know, this was a dog that he he was a Shetland sheepdog, that he likes working. Yeah. And so it got me into the world of competitive obedience. And I, and I guess that I thought, oh, this is so fun having this kind of dog that I should get another under socialized dog because, you know, about, oh, I don't know, five years, seven years later, uh, I went to a shelter, a local shelter, and that's what I got was another specialized dog who was a little bit on the um, shy, fearful side, but also had some fear-based aggressive uh, behaviors Mm -hmm. as well. And um, and I started working with that dog. um, And... It turned out that actually some of the people who I met that helped me the most with that dog was I had relocated to Orange County, California, and um, I was doing my job for career services, and I was doing one of these visits with a judge who um, was taking in interns from the school, Mm -hmm. and he was a dog person, and we were talking, and I was telling him about this dog, and he said, oh, well, you know, if you get into agility, this really can help build confidence in dogs. And he's like, I think that, you know, you, you might want to try this. And he said, you know, um, my wife and I are, they were really big into agility. They were elite competitors. Mm. And he was like, yeah, we're involved with this training facility uh, in the county. And um, you might want to check it out. So I ended up going over there and it turned out that dog really, yes, she built her confidence off of doing agility training. Um, again, just me working with her and doing all that training ended up evening out a lot of these behavioral challenges that she had. Turned out yeah. that also a really good agility competitor. And I ended up having a box of ribbons from her. Yeah. And so, you know, so here I kept working with dogs and working with dogs and acquiring dogs until the last one that I had acquired passed away in 2016. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I um, 
I was starting in on an MBA program because if you work in higher ed, you get education for free. I that is one of this the is one best of the best parts of working in higher ed. <laughs> yeah, I mistakenly so, went into higher ed after getting two advanced degrees, but <laughs> exactly. so, I, so I realized that this was not the time to adopt a dog because I'm working full time. I'm doing a graduate program, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I also realized that we have a local humane society, and our local humane society is um, was it was set up. It, is kind of through the pandemic set up to take a lot of volunteers. They have a lot of different programs. Um, And so I started volunteering there and the more I started volunteering there and the more involved I got there because I could ramp things up between, you know, quarters and terms. And then I could Mm -hmm. down a little bit when things got more busy at school Meanwhile, you still have a full-time job. <laughs> In the meantime, I still have yeah. a full-time job, exactly. Yeah. Letting me do that, I got, I got. they have a dog training department. And, and they said, you know, you you have this really good skill set. And they were like, you know, you could put this together. And I was like, well, you know, when I was a kid, I really wanted to work in the pet industry. But, you know, yeah. that was a job that my parents did not push me into because that's not, that's, that's not a job that you see, right. that you think of people who have degrees in graduate. Right. That's not like a realistic career. Exactly. Option. Yeah. Turns out all the dogs. Allegedly. <laughs> the Humane Society of Silicon Valley all have master's degrees in different disciplines. Yeah. And they're all highly educated people. And um, they were like, you know, no, they were like, we think you could do this. And so they started giving me tips on seminars to access, um, conferences to go to, how to educate myself to learn more about what I needed to in order to become a certified professional dog trainer. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up apprenticing under them. And um, then lo and behold, two of the dog trainers ended up moving and they needed to hire someone and they asked me whether or not I would like to do it. And it turned, and it was, the timing was right. I was just getting to leave the MBA program, graduate out of the MBA program and finish that. And so I said, yes, I would like to continue with them. And uh, so I, I did, I took the there's an exam to become a certified professional dog trainer. I took that. I, mm-hmm. I passed that. And, um, and then I opened up and I started um, my own dog training business on the side. Um, I, I max out. I don't take very many people. I don't add, do a lot of advertising because I max out at, uh, well, I used to say three private clients. It's now to since I adopted a puppy myself and mm-hmm. need to dedicate time to training her because she, I've got some fairly large aspirations for her with regard to the canine performance sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so between the group classes at the Humane Society and I constantly carry two private clients. Yeah, uh, yeah. maxes me out on that. But um that's just so cool. You know, I think it's such a great example of 
you just followed your interest, right? You're just like, I like doing this. I'm going to make time in my life to do something I enjoy with no particular um, destination other than just enjoying what you were doing. And it's evolved into this sort of whole thing. <laughs> it, it has. And, I, you know, when I was in career services, I used to tell the students a lot, you know, you need to just follow your passions and, you know, and think about what it is that you like doing. And frankly, even think about volunteering, which no one, when they're taking on that much debt to go to law school, no one yeah. will hear that, right? Yeah. Yep. But when I think about this particular business endeavor and the fact that, you know, let's say, let's say my law job goes away overnight. Yeah. What would I do? Well, I thought about going back, you know, in some form to law practice. And um, I have, I have a brother who he's a partner in a law firm. It would be, I would only be able to make that leap because after being out of it for so long, because due to his good graces, I could go back in as a, you know, like entry-level associate and do that. The thought of doing that is completely, (laughs) Yeah, just not anything I want to do. I mean, I feel like that now and I'm, you know, 10 years out. I just sort of like, what? Exactly. No. <laughs> and, I guess, you know, and I guess, you know, I mean, rather than being hungry, I guess I could do anything, you know. Right. Right. Of course. Rather than being unemployed. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, you know, it's like if the, law jo- if the law school job were to go away or if I didn't like it anymore or anything like that, um, frankly, I would spend my time working full time. Yeah dog training business. That's really the direction I would go at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Full time into that. And you never know when you have that sort of side business and, you know, it's limited for you now, but if, you know, as you, as your career progresses or you, you know, want to do different things, it's just there. It's an option for you. That's exactly it. Yeah. And that's exactly how I see yeah. it. Because at first I thought, oh, this will be my retirement job. Yeah. My retirement job will be training dogs but it's like, well, I don't know. When is retirement happening? Maybe it's yeah happens sooner than I thought because life, the one constant in life is that things change. Yep. <laughs> Certainly this year has shown us that, if nothing else. I think sometimes a dream that you could articulate now is one that you couldn't have articulated 10 years ago, right? But because you could have, I wouldn't have even dreamed that these were even career paths. That Right, right. And so I think it's just so important to follow what you like to do, keep an open mind and keep dreaming because, you know, you might actually come up with something that you're super excited about that you wouldn't have known about. might follow blazing trail for yourself. I mean, yep. Yeah, these are things, you know, like canine fitness actually exists. That's why a college, that's why a veterinary program has a certification program for it. Um, Canine massage actually exists. That's why there's, there's actually trade schools that have, that will train you in them and that will help you to get certifications in them. Yeah. But thinking about how you're going to do it and how you're going to package these things together, that's not the the road well traveled in terms of vocational paths, right? Right, right. It's yeah. actually the road less traveled. And so when I think about this a lot, I think it's actually like the solo practitioner in the law, mm-hmm. where the solo practitioner has to sit there and think through what do they really want to do in their legal practice? What are the kinds of clients they want to deal with? 
Yeah. Um, what are the issues they want to deal with in the law? And then how are they going to operationalize that to actually ma- have those kinds of clients materialize and have a business? Right. And so right. Have to think through then all of the, you know, business end of things, everything from where am I going to do this? Is it going to be out of a home office, an office office, you know, rural, urban setting? Right, right. That what kind of market exists and how am I going to actually communicate out the fact that I exist so that potential clients can find me? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, these are all things that actually attorneys do. They don't realize they maybe do it if they're right. smaller firms or solo practices, but it yeah. is things that they do and it all translates into then other business endeavors that lawyers might want to go into. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of just, being mindful and purposeful about it. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, Vicki, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, this has been so fun to, to chat with you from everything from higher ed to dogs, two things I, that are close to my heart as well. Um, but looking back sort of on your experience of being a lawyer, uh, is there anything, and, and your experience of many years as, as, a, as a career services uh, dean, any sort of advice that you would give to a lawyer thinking they're not in the right career at this point? Yeah. You know, if they think they're not in the right career, I would tell them to go ahead and have the courage to make a change. Yeah. Um, to explore what might be the right career for them. And if they're, if financially, if they can't quite swing it financially, mm-hmm. Uh, to make that change right away, then I would tell them to start getting into how start connecting with nonprofits, connect with groups, volunteer in areas where you like to spend your time. Because for one thing, you know, the going to work part might be draining them uh, just from an emotional standpoint. Yeah. But the volunteering may charge them up so that they can continue in on the thing that they, you know, that they have to do day to day. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. Cause I think that's one of the objections I hear a lot is like, I, I can't have afford no time to make or energy change. to do anything. Yeah. And I can't leave this job financially. Exactly. Um, but this but idea that, that is, energy isn't a finite thing that you could build it in your life, even as you hold a job that is draining you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I love that. Is that those past, like, I just find that if you're doing the thing you really like, you tend to do it really well. Yeah. You tend to connect with other people who like being in that arena as well. Yeah. It's all very natural. So it's not like, it's not like when you're looking for a job and it's not like, even when I talked to students, when I was in career services and I used to talk a lot about networking, of course, and students hated that because they were like, well, it all just feels so fake. And it's like, it might feel fake if you're going in and just looking for a job, any job, the job. Right, right. <laughs> because yeah. you're not now connecting on a genuine level with human beings that are also genuinely passionate about what it is that you're all, you know, somehow or another connected on. Yeah, yeah. And if you instead go into these other areas and just try doing this other thing, you're going to find that all of a sudden there's gonna, you're going to meet a new group of people and you yep. don't know who those connections are going to be. Absolutely. And you don't know what areas they're going to take you into. And so you might have opportunities that 
as things become poised, you know, maybe you're a lawyer who's been working for a small startup and all of a sudden that startup, you know, I don't know, either has an IPO or gets acquired by a bigger company. And maybe when all that happens, maybe that's a time where you're financially able to go into another thing. Yeah. A time yeah. Also where this other thing opens up. And so you then are poised to make this move, but you can't make the move if you haven't even built any kind of foundation to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great advice. Well, thank you so much, Vicki. I really appreciate your taking time on this holiday week to chat with me. <laughs> well, no, thank you. I love, I love talking about, I, I, I love talking, period. And uh, As do I. <laughs> so anyone who will listen to me talk about that. You know, you can hear your passion about it. It's, it's great. <laughs> well, thanks again, Vicki. You're welcome.